Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Intercooler podcast, everybody. This is episode 58, and we've got plenty of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about Lotus, Tamiya, Le Mans, F1 sprint qualifying, all sorts of stuff. Um, First of all, though, I mean, we just need to talk about the app again, don't we? Because we need to talk about us. We need to talk about us because the app Yay! is now one week old. Um, it's been out there for a week, and well, it's it's just been such a significant week for both of us, hasn't it? Um, and most important thing to say is thank you, thank you to the thousands of you, literally thousands of you who have downloaded the app so far. Um, great response. People have been very generous. They seem to be enjoying it, and some really useful feedback as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and also everybody who has reviewed it, um, you know, there are hundreds of views out there. I think one of them, I found one which wasn't five stars, uh, <laughs> and that, that they were talking about some functional issue they had with it. But, but, but every, and so, yeah, you're absolutely, everybody has been so kind about it. It really heartens us. I mean, as I think people who listen to this know, we've, we've really put our hearts and souls into this, um, and we've been doing it for a year now. Um, and to finally get this thing that we've been talking about for so long and actually produce it and go, actually, you know, we weren't just, you know, talking, we were actually doing, get it out there, see the response, um, which has been amazing. Uh, yeah, we cannot thank you enough. We're, we're, we're just chuffed and <laughs> relieved, um, reassured, lots of things, lots of good things. Um, so we're really, really happy. Um, and also means, you know, we ju- it just it motivates us to just want to, you know, get on and do more. Um, we're just, yeah, we couldn't be happier. It's been a very encouraging start. We've got lots more work still to do. There's a long way to go. Um, but we, I think we should just talk about some of the stuff that we've published in this first week. Um, just to just show the quality of it, show the, the breadth, the variety. Um, the, we opened up on the day it went live on the 26th um, with a piece from Mel Nichols, the first of a two-parter on meeting Enzo Ferrari and going to Marinello in the early 1970s. Um, both pieces are up on the app now. And it, it, I mean, particularly from him, Mel Nichols, it was such an evocative piece that really takes you there, puts you in Marinello in the 1970s, a place sadly none of, none of us will ever go now. Um, and it, it's so colourful. And it, particularly in the second part, where we shared lots of Mel's own photos, and you see Marinello as this shabby place with 
stuff lying around the courtyards and you know scruffy foundries and all this sort of stuff and it it's 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 romantic and it's so isn't it just and it's so much more evocative and charismatic than you know if you go there today you know that archway still there with the ferrari above it and it's great but it's a state-of-the-art modern factory um and and you go there and you could just you know you can almost just see the history oozing out of the walls and what mel does um, Mel, who I'm sure you all know, was the editor of Car Magazine in the late 70s and the early 80s. And, you know, certainly to someone like me is kind of like God because, you know, without him, you know, I'd never have, you know, fallen in love with cars and car journalism and that sort of thing. But, you know, what Mel does as well now as he ever did then, um, and I don't think anyone's ever done this better, is he puts you there, whether the there is behind the wheel of a car or in Enzo's office. He just puts you there. He puts you in the car. He puts you in the room. Um, and, it's just, it's just great to read, isn't it? It really is. Um, it's not all wistful stuff on the app. I mean, we're, we're working very hard to make sure it's not. And for instance, um, the piece went up today, as we're recording this, by Andrew English, on sort of delving into the true cost of driving an electric car, particularly if you can't charge at home. So using the fast charger network, um, but also getting stuck into the... Tr- it's, it's very expensive, yes, rubbing fingers together. Um, and also getting stuck into the, the true emissions of an electric car and how the cost and the cleanliness, as it were, compares to a fairly conventional diesel car. And I, I just don't know if anyone does that stuff more rigorously than Andrew English does. And, and, and it's also, you know, this sounds like, you know, the intercooler suddenly has gone, t- turned into consumer journalists. And t- to an extent, you know, this is undoubtedly a piece of consumer journalism. But you go read it. It's not just, you know, really interesting and important stuff. It's so beautifully written. It's so accessible. It's so funny in places. You know, we're talking, you know, he's talking about emissions and electric cars and all this really, really dry stuff, trying to make and actually very successfully making a very, very important point, which, you know, one of them being is that the emissions of these cars is nothing like um, the declared numbers suggest and also that they're far more expensive to run if you're charging publicly than, you know, an equivalent diesel car. And yet he does all that in a way that is... It's just such a great read. And, and that is the thing about the intercooler. You know, whatever it is, even if it is the most hard-nosed, most, you know, up-to-date industry story, it's always going to be a good story, isn't it? It's always going to be something that you don't just feel, oh, I ought to read this because it's important. You're going to want to read it because it's just great English. It's a great story. It's a great read. Um, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrific. Yeah, even when we're tackling what appear to be slightly dry topics. You'll enjoy reading about it, I promise. Um, and let's talk about uh, David Tuig's first piece as well, because we've got a great response to that. Um, I mean, th- this bloke, and it, it, it struck me the other day, it just it really hit me that I'm weirdly in a position where I get to commission written pieces from the bloke who engineered the car that I own. And it's a, you know, he, he led the what development... What car's that, Dan? <laughs> he led the development of a little French sports car. Um, and I just, I just all of a sudden felt so privileged and so lucky to be able to talk to this bloke, tell him what I wanted him to write about um, and read his stuff and post it on our app. Um, he's, and it's, and it, it's so annoying, isn't it? It's, it's so annoying so he, an- can write. he can write. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, that's not Marquis of Queensbury rules at all, is it? You know, if you're an engineer like that, what happens is, you know, we ask you to write something you write something we all have a bit of a titter 
and then rewrite it, and then we publish that. It didn't happen this time. He can write. He writes really, really. I mean, I'm afraid there are lots of people out there who earn a full-time living out of writing who can't write as well as David it. And it's, yeah. Um, and again, it's so... Um, it's a story about switch gear. Let's not beat about the bush. It's a story about switches. Um, but the things that manufacturers do to test their switches, um, there's an awful lot. It's, it's a, it's, yes, it's a, there's a lot about, um, about sweat in this story. There's a lot about uh, bird effluent in this story. Um, <laughs> there's a lot about sort of the Japanese cultural approach to dealing with these issues in this story. Uh, it's fascinating. It's, 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 it's fun, but it's actually, it's really interesting too. The, the reason David Tuig is such a good guy to write this stuff for us is that his CV is remarkable. So apart from being the bloke who oversaw the development of the A110, he was, at the same time, he was uh, head of vehicle engineering for Renault Sports. So he's got proper performance car um, credibility about him. He also drives a 911 SC. Um, and he, he shares our view on cars. He prefers lighter, smaller cars. And he, he talks about the virtues of smaller, lighter wheels and tires. So, honestly, if, if, you don't, if you haven't heard of this bloke before, I assure you, you'd get along with him and you'd, you'd share his points of view on cars. He's got that side of him, but he's also... So he was the guy who led the development years ago of the Renault Zoe and of the Nissan Qashqai, the original Nissan Qashqai. Now, these are, in their own ways, groundbreaking cars. The Qashqai was maybe the first... Um, sort of global sales phenomenon crossover and that's not the kind of car we like but it means that he's got this extraordinary perspective about how to go about engineering a car um, for the mass market but also for the performance market and more recently he's been um, head of engineering at Waymo the the former Google self-driving car um, and at Byton which is a Chinese uh, American electric startup so you just look at the, the breadth and variety in, on his CV um, and then you realise why this guy can shed so much light on the industry. And the key thing for me, what he's going to do that no one else writing about cars today can do is tell you stuff about the industry that you did not know before. Every time you read one of his pieces, you will learn several things that you just did not know went on. Um, and if you if you enjoy cars and you're interested in the industry, you'll find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, he's a great, but he's a great um, he's a great person to write for us, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is. The key thing is as well about the app. It's one big advantage of a digital product is that if you subscribe now, you get to see everything that we've published, um, not just the stuff that we publish after the date that you subscribe. So it's all up there. If you want to go and have a look, if you've been wondering about the app, if you've been meaning. To, to go and download it and have a look. Just go and do it now. You can start a one-month free trial um, so you can see if you like it before you give us even a penny. There's no obligation to continue. Just go and see what you think. Um, and, yeah, and let us know. We, and, we and, think and tell, like us, t- tell us what you think. You know, uh, the, you know, we always bang on about this, but it's only because it's true. You know, one of the most important things to us and one of the things, frankly, that we have enjoyed the most over these last three years that we've been doing drive nation and then the intercooler is our interaction with you lot um and the fact that you are so good and so keen to tell us what you think and the fact that you always do no you do always do it in a positive constructive way and you know 
we have so much to learn. You know, we think the app's really cool. We think the app's really good. And everybody who's commented on it so far has, has agreed with us. But we are not so arrogant as to think that's as good as it can get. Um, it clearly isn't. You know, we've never done anything like that. No one's ever actually done anything like that before. You know, there's never been an ad-free automotive subscription app before. So, you know, however good it is at the moment, you know, this is a, it's as bad now as it's ever going to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, with your help, you know, we just want to make it better and better and better. We want ideas about the appearance of the app. We want ideas about stuff you want to see on the app. Um, anything, anything that you think can help us do our job for you better, bring it on. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll make, we are making improvements. We'll make improvements to the comments section soon. Um, very soon you'll be able to read our stuff on a desktop computer or a laptop as well, just making the whole reading experience even more convenient. Um, okay, I just want to talk about a couple of Karen Chandock's pieces um, because you know, I said David Tuig was insightful. Karen really is insightful when it comes to motorsport. Again, when I read his stuff, I always learn something or understand something that I hadn't understood before. Um, he, his first big piece for us was about what it's like to drive a Formula One car, particularly comparing a bad one to a good one. He's driven plenty of championship winning F1 cars. And I suspect most of us remember that he, his, <laughs> he started off in Formula One in that HRT, the car that seemed to only come together right at the last minute and was, by any measure, it seems, a bad F1 car. Um, and he, he just he writes insightfully about this stuff. Yeah, because if, if you and I drove a bad F1 car... It would blow our minds. We'd just go, oh my God, how can everything be faster, more exciting? Yeah. Or really? I was Karen drives at Eves, you know, thinking, really? Mm, where's the downfall? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you need someone like Karen who's, you know, and, you know, you, it's not just that he's obviously, you know, Formula One standard, you know, driver and, uh, you know, and, and everything else. He is also one of these infuriating people who's also a gifted communicator. You only got to go and see him on Sky or commentating on Formula 1 or, or whatever he's doing is that he, he just can do that other thing. You know, he, it's not just that he can drive. Um, he can understand as well. Some people, there are some really good drivers who don't really understand what the car is doing. They just go out there and they do it. He can do that. He can interpret and then he can communicate. Um, and yeah, it's, as Dan says, it's really, really insightful stuff. Um, brilliantly written and, um, and always, again, tells you something you don't know. His most recent piece was, and we'll get stuck into the podcast now, it was a, a short, snappy um, opinion piece about Formula One sprint qualifying races announcement. Um, again, he just wrote an insightful piece about it. He he broadly thinks that it's good that Formula One is trying other things, but he feels like this whole proposal has been watered down um, and is a compromise. So we'll talk about it between us. Um, basically, Formula One and the teams have agreed that this year at three Grand Prix, um, Silverstone, Monza and one other to be announced, they will, they will run um, sprint races, uh, sprint qualifying races. So the format for the weekend will be one practice session on the Friday morning um, for an hour, and then they'll be into qualifying um, later that afternoon. So qualifying on a on a Friday afternoon. On the Saturday morning, there'll be a sprint race with the, the grid determined by the previous day's qualifying. Um, and that afternoon, there'll be one more practice session before the Grand Prix on Sunday, as it is right now, but with the grid determined by the result of the, the sprint qualifying race. So that's, that's what's new. That's never been done before. Um, 
And I, I, what do you think, Angie, then? Do you, are you sort of all for these little I, experiments? I, I'm absolutely all for experiments. Yeah, I mean, I think if you don't experiment, you don't learn, you don't improve. No, absolutely, I'm in favour of experiments. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, I was really interested in Karen's view because I thought I thought he would be, you know, saying, you know, thank goodness for that. Uh, I mean, not at all. I mean, I, I think we have to reserve judgment a bit until we've seen it. Um, but, um, you know, for myself, it is something and something is an awful lot better than nothing. But I mean, as Karen says, uh, I just wish they'd gone a bit further. I mean, in his piece, he talks about, um, you know, having reverse grids and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think that that's, you know, this is to me where something is so, you know, I, if you started, if you put out there the idea of, of, of having a reverse grid um, for at least some of these races, or just as they do in the BTCC, you know, maybe there's just the top 10 or whatever. And I can't imagine too many fans thinking, oh no, that's a really bad idea because it's going to get much, we're going to get much more exciting racing as the slower guys, the quicker guys down the back come through the field. Of course, the people who don't want it are the big cheeses, you know, the manufacturers who are up the front and don't want their lives made more difficult um, and run more risk of being taken out and, you know, and everything else. So, you know, Formula One has to decide where its priorities are. So, you know, I think it's a it's a good step. I'm glad it's happening. Um, we'll have to reserve judgment until we see it. But, um, you know, I think, as Karen, I think the point Karen really makes is let's hope it's not just a good step, but a first step and that it works and that then empowers them to go on and do more stuff and to shake it up even more and to make the show even more interesting. Because, you know, I think it ha- I think F1 has improved. I think we have to give credit where it's due um, in recent times. I think we have had you know, a pretty interesting start to the season. Um, and this is obviously going out after the race this weekend. But, you know, um, yeah, I think it's a good first step, but uh, hopefully much more to come. Yeah, hopefully more to come. That's the key thing, isn't, there? isn't it? Um, okay, so let's move it on. A little while ago, a few weeks ago, we recorded a podcast about versatile racing drivers. Um, and people still talk to me about that or send me messages or whatever. Um, and... For example, Henry Catchpole, one of our uh, top writers, has written a piece, and it's on the app now, um, about versatile racing drivers. And he's basically making a case for, it was the point that you made in the podcast, you you hold the versatile racing driver who is able to compete in multiple different categories and disciplines in higher regard than you do the specialist who is able to dominate one particular category. Um, Henry agrees with you on that, and he gives he gives some really good examples of people who who are able to compete broadly and competitively, not just in motorsport actually, but in other in other sports. Um, but in motor in racing, he talks about guys like Mattis Ekstrom who can win in you know high downforce cars on slicks, but also on loose surfaces. And I mean, he makes a very good point. Perhaps the most most versatile motorsport competitor is the bloke who won world championships on two wheels and four which is i mean the more you think about it the, the more astonishing that feat seems doesn't it john surtees um well, and mean, it's, can, it's can hard you, to argue yeah i mean you know and the chances of that ever happening again are vanishingly small yeah. aren't they they really are yeah it's it, it, we're not going to see it again i think i mean i'm just i'm just trying to think i mean i don't know much about motors i'm just trying to think of people who started their lives with motorcycle races who went on to even score points in Formula One. Well, there's obviously Surtees, Mike Halewood. Mm. Um, there must be others. I'm sure people will tell us who the others are. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, 
I think Kimmy is very good on a motocross bike, and I think he he competed um, on them when he was younger. Um, He he also he also races snowmobiles, doesn't he? Um, So that's a bloke with a sort of varied background. Um, Gilles, but, Gilles Villeneuve, the great, late, yeah. wonderful, you know, one my hero, Gilles Villeneuve, he was an extremely accomplished snowmobile racer. Really? <laughs> yeah. So but anyway, if you're growing up in the sort of frozen wastes of Quebec, as, yeah. you know, as, as he did, um, you know, that's, you kind of race what's around, don't you? Yeah, and, you, do. you know, that's yeah. what they had up there. They had sort of skidoos, so they went out there and raced those. As you would. Yeah, as you would. Um, so this versatile racing driver, it really did spark a bit of a conversation. And actually, I sat down with our mate, Marino Franchitti, to talk about versatility in racing drivers. And that was for what we call a TI Super podcast. Now, a, a TI Super podcast is exclusively for app subscribers. Um, so hopefully another good incentive to go and subscribe to this app of ours. Um, I sit down and talk to Marino for 35, 40 minutes about, um, about competing in various disciplines. Now, this is a bloke who has particularly recently dr- driven all sorts of different cars. So he understands what it takes to jump out of a GT car into an LMP2 car into a historic Goodwood. Um, he's, got, he's got a really broad experience these days. And it was interesting hearing him talk about how he thinks uh, racing at Goodwood and feeling a car moving around and driving it in that very different way where you're on the power almost as soon as the nose is tucked in rather than trying to get to the apex, neat and tidy, and then just stand on the power and get away. So very different driving style. Um, I just want to play a few minutes of that podcast because it's just an interesting listen. Two years ago at Goodwood, driving the, uh, I jumped in the last minute in an LMP2 car around Goodwood at dusk. And I ended up, there was a really slow guy in front of me who backed off the rest of the pack because we're behind the safety car. And then after two laps, he pulled off. And I just went for it. I would love to know what my speed was. And past the pits, I was kind of looking like I was cruising. Otherwise, I was wide open. And to feel that downforce around there and the bumps and everything else, it it, it was weird having those two worlds collide for me. Mm. I'm just so used to driving old stuff around Goodwood. Mm. And they're so different. The way you approach it is so different. And the, the inputs and you know, you're used to throwing these old cars, big wheel, and in the LMP2 car, you're just like, it's literally all these little inputs. And if you yeah. go past a certain point, the tire, you just, the tire slip angle just won't take it and you just understeer. It's, it's really weird. It's just, mm. they're so different. It's like having different operating systems in your brain to, to operate yeah. them. What, what's more physical effort? What's keeping you busier? Oh, definitely the, the modern car, just the forces on your body. Mm. I would say that driving the 250F Maserati was, around Goodwood, you use your knees to hold you in. There's no seatbelts. And you understand why uh, Fangio was a big, guy, a big guy. I think Sterling was obviously wiry. He was obviously had incredible muscle uh, endurance because to drive those for three hours, I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. The car is so hot inside, even though it's open. So much heat coming back off the engine, the prop shaft down between your legs. And I found that in the race, I was in amongst some of the rear engine cars and I was driving really hard. And for three or four laps, I could hang on to it. And then two things happened. The drum brakes start overheating. But also physically, I was absolutely knackered from holding myself and trying to hold myself in position and manipulate this incredible car. It is, the, I think, the most satisfying car 
to drive mm-hmm. I've ever sat in for, for just the pure joy of driving the, the 250F. But then I had to, as you did in those days, yeah, I had to uh, pace myself. I had to drive to what the brakes would do and also just not exhaust myself to the point where I couldn't hang on to it. And this is a 20-minute race. Yeah, wow. Um, do you think that there's any sort of skills transfer or does spending time in, his, his, in historic cars somehow inform how you drive the modern stuff? Does it improve you? I think it's improved me because I think it, like talking about the guys earlier on dirt, it's given me... Mm. If a car moved about before, I was like, oh, God, no, that's not right. You know, it's so <laughs> tight. And, whereas now I'm happy with a four-wheel drift coming out of a corner. So, therefore, you, you are able to deal with uh, different things. Mm. I think it's allowed me to, to change my way of driving to dial into a car faster. Mm. So, if I get in a car, it's not got the balance I like, then instead of just complaining about it and trying to work on the setup, I can, I can adapt myself more quickly, I think. Mm. Oh, interesting. So maybe these modern drivers should try different types of vehicle, older stuff, different codes, and just see what they pick up from there. I think there's a huge amount to, to begin from it. I think what really stands out to me about all of that stuff is that Marino really thinks that particularly young racing drivers, they should make a point of just getting in whatever type of car that they can because they will learn something even if you're pursuing a single seater career if you jump in an old car on tires you know on uh, cross ply tires that are that wide and that have to be sliding across the road you're going to learn something maybe you'll learn something about controlling a car in the wet yeah it's, uh, it's, it's interesting i mean because my history in racing is not entirely but predominantly um, in old cars where you are driving cars like that um, if I go and drive a modern racing car um, and then the engineers sort of go and look at the telemetry they they can't can't understand what I'm doing because they, they're seeing my sort of throttle <laughs> traces and, and you're sort of going through the corner and the line's sort of doing this and they what are you doing there what are you doing I said well I'm balancing the car well, why do you want to do that and it's you know so um yeah, it's it, 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 it's a completely different discipline, but it's you know as you say, it's just um, it's just great to learn stuff, isn't it? And there's always something to learn. You know, I, you know however old you are, uh, however good you are, um, you know, I think if you put Lewis in, I don't know a Maserati 250F, I don't know whether he'd enjoy the experience. He may or may not, but he'd certainly learn something. He'd certainly come back and think, I didn't know cars were like that. So yeah, mm. okay. Let's keep moving it on. Some other things that have been on our radar in the last week or so. Let's talk about Tamiya. Because hey. they've, they've announced um, a new self-build kit. Uh, and it looks like many other Tamiyas. Um, and it, it, it's got an electric motor and a battery. Um, and this one's different because rather than being um, that sort of size, you know, dinner plate size, it's almost a full-size car because you can drive it yourself. It is How a cool full-size that? car. It's, the, it's, it's as long as an up. Yeah, it's a full-size. So they call it... I mean, this is, uh, just to be clear, this is um, something which uh, a wonderful company called The Little Car Company um, is doing in association with Tamiya. And The Little Car Company, you've probably seen their... I think it's a 66% DB5 Junior they do, um, or a thing which looks like a Type 35. They call it... I think they call it um, the Baby Bugatti. Um, and... These guys are amazing. Um, 
you know, these aren't sort of cheap little kits. These are proper, proper things, properly engineered. Um, I've been talking to Ben Headley, the CEO of the uh, little car company, uh, about this um, insane Tamiya thing that they're about to um, they're about to build. I don't actually think they're going to start selling them um, until next year. Um, but the response, the response to um, the thing that I put up on the Instagram site. And also the response to all the other media it's got has been it's been absolutely I mean, the amount of people who have just say right I'm on one of those because it's I mean it's a lot of money for you know for what it is uh, I think it's going to be like sort of six seven thousand pounds before you do the what do they call them hop ups before you and, and I've also I've also been talking to Ben and I can't sadly I can't tell you any of these things because it is um, you know still very much sort of under wraps and he's told me on a sort of entirely confidential basis but. Yeah, if you think the, the the car as it is 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 going to be fun, you know he's got he's got really interesting plans for you know little additional for optional things you'll be able to bolt onto it in the future. So um, we're really excited about it. Uh, I, okay, let's put it this way: I haven't been more excited about an electric car in my life um, than I have about this um, uh, uh, about this little car company Tamiya thing. So yeah, yeah. can't wait. They call it they call it Wild One Max because I think Wild One was one of their iconic. Um, it's really one of the iconic original Tamiya models from the from the eighties, yeah. Yeah, um, five and a half horsepower, the base model at least. I think base there might model. be more power to come. Yes, I, I think there might be a bit more coming. <laughs> oh, good. And the thing's only two hundred and fifty kilograms, which is yes. bananas actually. Um, up to a twenty-five mile range. Um, I yeah. don't know. Maybe they'll do a bigger battery that will go further. Um, what also, the thing that I you can you can, you can make yeah, it road legal, I, and I just can't believe how, how is that possible? But well, whatever it's, it's there'll the be a pack way, that allows you yeah. to drive this thing on the road. Yeah, because it will mean because it, it will count as a whatever they call it a licensed quadricycle. It's the same. Yeah, it's the oh, same okay. thing that G whizzes and that, that and that lot do. So you know, so they supply you with some number plates and some indicators and whatever else you know gubbins you need to comply with those licensed quadricycles. I think doesn't oh, that may also mean that I'm not sure I may be completely wrong about this but I think it might also mean that 16 year olds can go and drive them on the road as well um and I, I you know I just like the I like the imagination I like the creativity um I like the approach um and I like the passion I mean these guys are absolutely and also I just like the fact that people are doing interesting stuff with electric vehicles I mean um you know this could be as I said, you know, the first true electric sports car that's genuinely fun to drive. And it's a Tamiya kit that you build in your shed. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? The prospect yeah, it of is. it is so exciting. Yeah. I think anyway, if, if you've got a shed, a little bit of land maybe, um, you'd just have one for tooling around in, wouldn't you? And popping down into the village and all that stuff. I, I, I'm totally sold on if it. It's, if it's got 25 miles, you know... You could, you could, you know, that could be an absolutely feasible, you know, short commute daily driver for, you know, or just muck it out. I mean, what a fantastic car to take to the pub. I mean, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I might have to have one of these things. I just, <laughs> I just, I just, I just so like the idea. I really yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. I think well, honestly, I think they're going to sell. I think they're going to be cues. Yes. Oh, I think they will. I think they will. I think it's a stroke of genius. So um, I, just imagine seeing. What ultimately looks like a full-size Tamiya radio-controlled car going down the road with with someone at the wheel. He's just going to go, what? It'll be me. 
<laughs> okay, good. Well, let's hope it lives up to expectations. Um, let's mm. clip along then. Lotus, because in the last few days, um, yep. they've revealed the name of their new sports car and uh, a rendering of it, so we have some idea of what it looks like. Can, can you pronounce the name for me, please? I'm guessing it's Amira. Amira, yeah. It won't be a Myra, will it? But it's probably a Myra. Well, it's, it is Evaya, isn't it? It's not it a is, Yeah. And uh, do you know what? I'm not entirely convinced by Lotus's recent names. Evaya, Amira. Um, don't know. Maybe it'll grow on me. Now, and also, names that can be pronounced two ways. How do you pronounce the name of the car that succeeded the Lamborghini Diablo and came before the Aventador? The, the Mathialogo. Not Murcielago. 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 I still don't know. Yeah. The cars, I mean, the cost is <laughs> probably in 20 years. I still don't know how to pronounce the name of that car. Hopeless. Hopeless. Um, anyway, we're supposed to be talking about Lotuses. Yes, the, sorry. Yes, don't. The Amira. The, the Amira. <laughs> the, the, I tripped myself up. The Amira. So this is going to be the last combustion engine Lotus. So that's what they're saying. Not purely combustion engine Lotus, I think. Uh, okay, fine. Yeah, okay. Good, good yeah. save. Um, there'll be four-cylinder turbo and supercharged V6 engine options. Um, yeah. This car basically replaces the existing range, doesn't it? The existing sports car range. Well, insofar as the Elise and the Exige have gone, um, I think the replacements for those will be electric. I don't think anybody's told me that, but I'm just looking at what the, the product plan that they have announced or what bits of it they've announced, that would seem to be what it suggests to me. Uh, and yeah, and this car is... Well, ultimately, it is a massively evolved Evora. You know, it's still, that's where it starts, that's what the start point was. It's still, the platform is still related to the Evora's platform. Obviously, that three and a half litre V6 powertrain um, is the one that you get in Evora now. I mean, I have been told that it is so changed as, for, you know, effectively, for further comparison, to be meaningless. But yeah, that's where it is. And And to me, the really interesting thing about it is i just kind of thought and i think many of us thought that when lotus was going to make this big sort of yeehaw um return obviously there's the avaya which is the you know we do electric hypercar headline grabber but the first actual sort of production car was going to be a new esprit um because that would so show confidence it would be a um a high margin low volume car and, and also if you remember back in the Danny Bahar era Lotus, that's what they decided to do then. That was going to be the first. In fact, they actually had a car. They built a car. Uh, I think it met a slightly unfortunate end. Um, but anyway, that naked. And I just always thought that this, this new car was going to be that sort of thing. So top end 911, 911 turbo kind of money, 120, 130 grand. It's not at all. You know, um, Matt Wendell, the new CEO at Lotus, has said that it's going to be priced between a 911 and a Cayman, but closer to a Cayman. So it's going to be, you know, a lot more accessible. Um, I also think that that's, you know, it's, 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 it's sensible in some respects because that's uh, where Lotus, that's people, where pre- people expect Lotus to be. It's kind of, you know, where the Evora was and, and so on. Um, but on the other hand, you know, talk about competition. You know, if you're going headlong against that lot at that price point, you know, there are no excuses. Um, and it has to be, you know, unlike the Evora, which was a really, really nice idea, but was so flawed in reality that it was never going to be more than a kind of niche product. Um, you know, this is going to have to be absolutely functional and beautifully built 
um, and a proper rival for you know a Porsche Cayman. And we know how many people have tried to do that in the past and how many have succeeded. It's a, it's a really, really tough challenge. But you know they seem confident, and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, this is the Type 131 that lots of people have been talking about recently. It's now got the not now got a name, Emira, um, and we see it early in July. You say Emira, I say Emira. Yeah, quite. <laughs> and, and from the rendering that they have released, there there are some clear Avaya influences in there. I think it could look yeah. great, but we'll find out in a couple of months. Um, okay, yeah. last topic for this week. Le Mans, and you wrote a really good piece, which is going up today as we're recording this, about Porsche and Audi. Um, yeah it's an interesting one isn't it because well do you want to explain the story yeah audi put out a press release uh, as you're listening to this last week this week as we're recording it um saying that basically the platform sharing um model which you know porsche and audi in fact all vw brand uh, marks have used um was going to be taken from the road going arena and placed into the motorsports arena and so that the new porsche and audi cars that will race at Le Mans in 2023 in the LMDH category um, will be effectively jointly developed. Um, now, you know, a couple of things on this. Firstly, you know, in that category, there's not much wriggle room anyway. You've got like four chassis you can, t- you, can, you can choose. Everybody has the same spec hybrid system. The maximum length, height, weight, wheelbase, uh, drag force down to downforce ratio, um, minimum weight, all that stuff is just prescribed anyway. So you don't get a choice over that. And now, so, you know, the only thing that is completely free is the engine, but even that has its power capped. So, you know, there's no point trying to put something enormous in there. Um, and now what we're hearing is, you know, and, and Audi made the exact comparison between the e-tron GT. And the Taycan, the Porsche Taycan, you know, saying that, you know, they're developed on the same platforms. And we know that the Taycan and the e-tron GT beneath the skin are, you know, in terms of their hardware, um, are essentially the same car. Um, and that appears to be what they're saying about their racing cars. And I, I, I fear I'm being really naive about this. And there'll be lots of people going, well, yes, of course. You know, obviously that makes sense. You know, what do they want to do? They want to go out and win races. And the way you do that is by pooling resources you know, getting as many great heads together and coming up with the best racing car. And then, you know, Porsche puts Porsche clothing on it, Audi puts Audi clothing on it, and off you go, and, and, and then you go and race. But, and, and I'm sure that's all true, but, you know, again, is that what the fans want? Or do the fans want to see a Porsche racing an Audi? A Porsche that is a Porsche racing an Audi that is an Audi. Uh, and seeing who does best. Um, and, oh, I don't know. So it's, it's only a kind of a line in a press release, and, and, and I, I, I'm certainly uh, in danger of running away with this and, and, and getting sort of and, and, and overthinking it a bit. But just as a philosophy, I understand why in road cars it, it, kind of, it, it makes sense. I completely get that. Um, you, know, you know, if an Audi you know, Q8 and a Porsche Cayenne are closely related under the skin, I don't think anybody knows or cares about that because, you know, that's a kind of marketing thing but in racing you know it's one team against another isn't it it's not two teams you know or the same team one dressed up like that the other just like that actually you know collaborating together to do you know i don't know i don't know i just i just think it's sad it would have been much more exciting if they'd come out and said oh no no there's no overlap whatsoever we're not telling them a thing about what we're up to. And that would really make you think, oh, great, Porsche versus... As they did when they were both doing, you know, LMP hybrid. 
yeah, if you'd gone to Porsche back then and said, just why don't you just go and share all that technology with Audi? In fact, why don't you just develop the car together? I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine what kind of reaction you'd get. I mean, Porsche is such a proud, independent company, isn't it, when it comes to these things? Um, I don't know if it's significant that this release has come out from Audi rather than from Porsche. I don't I haven't spoken to anybody at Porsche about what they think about it, but you know, there will be people there, I'm sure, at Porsche just thinking, you know, this isn't the Porsche way to go racing. We don't, you know, team up with, you know, at a sense to be a rival company, even if it's under the same umbrella organisation, and, you know, and go to them and say, oh, can you come and work with us? Because together we'll make an even better race. They're Porsche. Nobody does that job better than they do. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm, yes, I'm going to get overwrought in a minute, so I'll have to go and calm down. But um, I, 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 I hope that there is, frankly, I hope there's less to this than meets the eye. I hope it's just a line and a release and, you know, th- there will be clarifications and Porsche will come out and go, well, actually, steady, steady, steady. You know, that's not quite. Um, but as of now, it appears to be the same car in different clothes. Mm. And I really hope I'm mm. wrong. Yeah, it, it, it might turn out to be racing by numbers, which isn't the sort of romance that you and I and people like us look for, in, particularly in sports car racing. Um, let's, see, let's see how it plays out. Um, okay, let's leave that one there then. Um, and do remember, please, to go and check out the Intercooler app. Um, just search the Intercooler on whichever app store you use. It'll come up, you'll find it easily. Or you can go to theintercooler.co.uk um, and you'll find a download page on our website where there are links directly to the app store. Just go and have a look, download it, start a free trial, see what you think. If you don't like it, just cancel your free trial. You won't, it won't cost you a penny. It's so easy. It's so easy to take out a trial and it's even easier to cancel it, isn't it? So Yeah, it's, it's really um, straightforward. Yeah. There genuinely is nothing to lose. And of course, we're going to bang the drum because, you know, ultimately, you know, it's how we earn our livings. But more than that, as journalists as fellow enthusiasts um, and as actually people who aren't doing most of the writing on it. Most of it is our contributors. Um, We just think it's a really, really good thing. Um, We may say that, but just judge it for yourself. Don't take our word for it. Just go and have a look, have a quick download, do the free trial uh, and you'll know, you'll know instantly. You, you, You will look at it and you'll surf around and you'll think, wow, actually it is what they say it is. Or they'll think, well, yeah, that's nice. Well, it's been taught for me really. At which stage you can just go into your settings and get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Give us a go. That's the takeaway, isn't it? Give Please. us a go. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. I'm not going to do any more calls to action, as as they're known, uh, because I just want you to go and down- download the app. But we will be back to talk to you all again next week. I look forward to it very much. All the best. Bye, everyone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.